uh, Mark 11, 11 through 25, Jesus is going to say, and more importantly, do something this morning that will trigger the start of some conclusive responses to him, both amongst the religious leaders and the people. Uh, as we will see uh, next week, and this is, you'll see this trend moving this direction, we'll see next week those in power, based on what Jesus does today, will try to start negotiate with Jesus and see if there's any wiggle room that remains for personal autonomy, personal rule over one's life. And when they see and they find out that beyond all doubt, that Jesus' offer to rescue and run your life freely is an all-or-nothing proposition, it becomes so obvious how hostile they are to this message that Jesus himself predicts their murder of him in detail. So, hostility, increasing hostility in the next three weeks. Welcome to Sunrise Community Church. <laughs> Wonderful. But we're going to learn from this this morning as we go on. Um, See, what happens is the, the, the religious leaders grasp that Jesus is setting himself up to replace the temple, God's temple, as the structure to house God. And Jesus leaves then no room for any other power in Jerusalem. There are political powers, religious powers, spiritual powers that work in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm going to consolidate that in myself. I'm going to house the presence of God. So not only are we going to see this morning, they they will have no room for him, even to sleep for the night, but they will even start to begin the plan to destroy him. Well, let's read that. Mark 11. We're going to read again, verses 11 through 25. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Again, no room for him. On the following day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see if he could find anything on it, any fruit. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, have faith in God, truly. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so your Father, who, um, also who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Elsewhere in your word, Proverbs 13, 14, we're told that the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, that those who hear it may turn away from the snares of death. Jesus, we know that your your teaching is wise. And it, it is such a privilege this morning just to talk about you talk about what you teach and what you do, and to consider how we might apply it to our lives today in the 21st century. I pray that it would be also wise that you would, this morning, turn folks even away from the snares of death into life. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Your attendance this morning at Sunrise Community Church could be your greatest enemy. Your church attendance in fact, has the potential to be the greatest deterrent to lasting change in your life. Your church attendance can actually prove the most costly counterfeit in which you ever invest yourself. Church attendance. And I have everything, every reason to say otherwise because I'm a pastor. But before you quietly hit the exits for brunch, catch the end of Premier League football, or the premiere of American football, I want to encourage you to determine to discover what Jesus is doing. Listen, please, with attention to what he says in these words. As he provides the one possibility for genuine change, for lasting fruit, and a life lived with unfettered access to the God of the universe. So please listen. We're going to start with an incident about which Jesus has historically gotten a lot of flack. But it's the key to grasping everything we read this morning. He gets a lot of flack because he's hungry, right? And he appears grumpy. Right? He's, it's very simply because God has become a human being, he, he gets hungry. And now we're told in today's world that if you're hungry and grumpy, you just reach for a Snickers. Right? That's, that's when you don't become a prima donna celebrity. Right? Jesus did the first century Jewish country boy equivalent of this. He seeks out a snack in the form of a fig tree. And he gets mad upon discovering this fig tree. And he curses it because he finds it bare. Which seems unfair because we're actually told strangely, did you notice this? It's not the season for figs. So he comes to this tree that's not supposed to produce fruit at this time, and he gets mad at it. That's like unfair to the tree, right? The tree huggers. But actually, it's interesting, in the spring months in Palestine, uh, March, and, uh, March through April, prior to the fig season, there would be these little green knobs that formed on fig trees called pagim. All right, and they were a kind of delicacy for those who knew about them. You'd go and you'd pick them and you'd eat them. 
Not everyone knew about them, though. Jesus did. And he doesn't find even these on the tree. So noticing no little pagim, little delicacies, Jesus knows something about the fig tree that most of us don't. That is never going to work like it should. It's never going to work like it should. It's never going to produce fruit. And that's when we realize Jesus really isn't making a statement about a fig tree, is he? He's trying to make a statement about us. Through the unfolding of his two object lessons here, the fig tree and the temple, Jesus makes two big statements about us. But just when hope seems literally withered to its roots, he graciously, as Jesus always does, opens this one possibility for us. All right? So he's going to make two big statements, and then in the end, kind of come in with this one gracious possibility for us. So statement number one that Jesus makes about us through these two object lessons. We believe, most of us believe, we have a low-grade problem, and so we seek a low-grade solution. And I thought what would be the most helpful thing as we go through these uh, different statements Jesus makes about us is kind of take a then-and-now approach. All right, so as we work through grasping this ancient story We'll look at its context, then we'll look at how it applies to now. So first, then, most Jews believed they were born with a low-grade problem for which God provided a low-grade solution, specifically the temple. Going to make occasional wrongs right with God by going to his house and getting something done about it. Taking refuge in temple obedience is sort of an effective life strategy was for a first century Jew very easy to slip into. So imagine this with me if you would. I thought what we could do is just try to imagine this as a person living in this time. Imagine if you would. You grew up, you grew up hearing stories about Abraham, who's called a friend of God. You grew up hearing stories about Moses, who would meet with God up on a mountain. You heard stories about David, whose greatest solace in life wasn't a military victory or even peace in the land, but getting back to the presence of God in the house of God, okay? It's one of the reasons David wished to build God an earthly home more suitable than a little tabernacle or small building. He wanted to build a temple where where God could really show up, something that was worthy of him. That's where he took his solace. Now, now the actions and the attitude of your parents, your mom and dad, started to reflect this. All right, dad and mom's actions and fervor was always repeat during the three main Jewish festivals that happened every time of year. You saw them get excited, a little more excited about God, a little more joyful. See, each of these Jewish festivals lasted a full week. So it was like a true vacation, right? A true, like, we're going to celebrate and it's going to be a full week. All the people of God, all together. You you grew up traveling with your parents, regularly visiting the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Passover. And as you walked uphill towards Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was quite elevated, you sang songs with families around you. You saw the Underhills and the Smiths and the Joneses. And you sang songs. In fact, there are 15 psalms in the Old Testament, written just just for these festival pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship Him. 
15 psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. You see them in Psalms 120 through Psalms 134. You can read them. 10% of the Psalter just for these pilgrimages to go to Jerusalem to make your sacrifices with pigeons and lambs and goats. And as you walked into the temple, think about this as a kid. You're walking into the temple, and you know as a kid everything's bigger than you imagine, but this is big. You walk into the temple, specifically the largest outer area called the Court of Gentiles, and it was just breathtaking, shivers down your spine. It was a spectacle. You see it up here behind me. Look at that. Thousands and thousands of people, various cries out to God in His different names. The various dialects, the nuances throughout Israel is bustling with activity, which I'll describe in further detail in a little bit. In fact, as many as they say 75,000 people could have fit in this court of Gentiles. Sure, you'd heard about the vibrant faith. You heard about the vibrant faith of Abraham, of David, of Moses. But the temple, what you saw was that the temple was the true spectacle that to any young adherent would constitute being Jewish, constitute this is what it is to be the people of God. This is the highlight. This is the fireworks. It's awesome. Now, fast forward, if you would, to low-grade problems and low-grade solutions of now. There are a few, very simple, I'll just mention, common reasons people come to church. People come for worship. You might say, I need, at the most extreme, I need to change. I need to change. Maybe that's you this morning. You, You got out of bed You got to church because you recognize your life is in serious need of a remodel. You've experienced personality problems at work that have hindered your job performance. People in relationships and marriage, things just aren't working. And you recognize, man, I think maybe I need some serious change, some serious remodel to my life. I'm willing to say that. Now, you might go and just say, well, I mean, at least I could use some help. So you punch the alarm, you get out of bed, you make your coffee because you recognize you have a broken life that needs fixing. You drive over here, you seek out some counsel, you open your Bible. You've made some significant errors in judgment. You know this. You know you've done this, but you know who you are. You know you've experienced better in your life. You know you could use some help. Or it just might be you could use a pick-me-up this morning. You thought last night, you know, I can really use a pick-me-up. I'm kind of down. I have a good life that I'd like to improve. Use a little retouching, a little refreshing. So I'll make it to church. I mean, I'm so glad that you're here. I prayed, understand, I prayed every day this week. Prayed for you specifically to be here, if that's you. But like Jesus says of the temple and church attendance in and of itself, it is a low-grade solution with no power to change you. In other words, just being here, driving here this morning, your presence here does not have power to change you. Jesus is warning us that the end of church attendance in and of itself, like the fig tree, is a spirituality withered to its roots. A person whose final destination is death. The testimony of God's Word throughout His Word 
And you read this in the prophets, but it, with Jesus here, you don't need to pick me up. You don't need just help. You don't even need significant changes. You need a total rebuild. Total rebuild. You're trying to save the house, and it just needs to be scrapped. God is saying, I'll take the property and the deed. Let me do the rest. God's high-grade solution is so radical that, that, that like His kingdom that Jesus has been describing, it can't be defined. It can only be described. So here's how it is described in Scripture, this total need for what we need to actually change in life, to live a life pleasing to God, new creation. It's become a new creation. The Scripture references will be up there. He says you, you, not, you don't just need a clean slate in life. You need to become a new slate. He says you have to be born again. Not just a fresh start, but an entirely new life. An entirely new birth certificate. A new name, as it were. A child of God. Trading a heart of stone for a new, brand new heart. A heart of flesh. Not just a refresh or a heartwarming moment, but a new heart. And on this more malleable heart, this more pliable heart, God will write His law that we can't do on our own. This is amazing. All the things we want to do, we want to be a good person, we want to change, we want to be effective in other people's life, and we just get frustrated because we can't, can't quite get there. We keep stumbling. We keep getting frustrated. God does through a total rebuild. He's you writes on your heart, which you can't do on your own, which is significant because the Hebrew understanding of heart, unlike today where we think of this is the heart, right? <gasps> right, Valentine's Day, emotions, taking you out for dinner, right, these sorts of things. Back then, the Hebrew understanding of the heart wasn't just to be the seat of emotions, but primarily, it was the seat of the will, the ability to do the decisions we make and live out in our lives. See that? So God offers total change and with it the ability to actually do the radical things He says and be the change that everybody talks about it, but nobody can be on their own. We're going to see how He does that this morning. But first, why do we need such a total change? Because we have a high-grade problem called sin. I know you've heard of this before. You've heard rumors about it at least. Sin is a hereditary spiritual disease that manifests itself with this big no towards God. A big yes towards the way we want to run our own lives and a big no towards God. That's how we experience. We, we sense that within and it comes out in the way we live. And people have always tried to find solutions for this, whether it be their own sin or the sin of others. There's a great description of it in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. This is just one, chapter 2, where he says people seek all kinds of religious rituals. They seek all kinds of strategies and practical habits to become a better person. And God calls all of them broken cisterns. In other words, he says places people go to find water, but there's just empty wells. And in that same chapter, Jeremiah 2, God says, Although you, you try, although you wash yourself with soda, use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt because of rebellion is still before me. Now you might say, man, man it's ne- Ryan, it's never as bad as you preachers make it out to be. All right? A lot of good things in my life. You make it out to be this disease that you can't get... Let's just look. 
for a moment, if you would, at history, all right? Now, some of us grew up in the scientific age. And most of us grew up at least experiencing the wide-ranging impact of the so-called scientific age, namely the practice of what's known as the scientific method, right? Which involves the, the gathering of observable empirical evidence and then measuring it. You make a hypothesis, then you look for more evidence. Then you develop a theory, and then you test outcomes until that theory becomes a fact. There is no more, friends, there's no more evidenced empirical fact in this world than the reality of sin and our inability to eradicate it. Our inability to get rid of it, to remove the problem. People have tried for centuries a rebellion towards God. You know, the 20th century was supposed to be the next age. Of course, it was just the next age. Where we'd matured enough as a human race to to get rid of problems on our own. right? To, to, To solve this. Work together to make the world a better place. To rid the world of evil without religion. John Lennon sang about. And yet the most significant acts of intolerance and violence, you know, in the 20th century were practiced by those who believe religion was the cause of intolerance and violence. Do you know that? Think about it. Soviet Russia, communist China, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, Nazi Germany, all started as attempts to put the kibosh on religion, to replace religion. And what happened? Death by the hundreds of thousands. We recognize this historically, but we recognize sin today as well. We recognize it most early when we deal with children, right? Where out of nowhere, the supposedly innocent say no and then throw baby food in your face. Like, what is this? We're somehow surprised. Not if we knew about sin, that it's a hereditary disease. We recognize it most seriously when we encounter prejudice, hate, corruption, the cost the most vulnerable in our society. We encounter it most personally in our own hearts. When you, when you, I don't know if you, I kept, when you catch yourself thinking a surprisingly wicked thought, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Or you, or you act on, a, on an impulse that would deeply hurt if it was done to you, and you do it anyway. Or, or maybe you justify yourself. You tell yourself that, that the wrongdoings you're doing, the little ones, are for a greater good. Right? You know you, you kind of do that. You say, oh, but, but it's, it's, it's for greater good. And the remedies for these things, charity giving, church going, is neither sufficient to please God, nor is it a sufficiently powerful mechanism for change. That's the first statement here. Second statement Jesus is making about us as it applies to today is calling religious rituals real religion. So confusing others about the right solution. We call these religious rituals in our life, this is real religion. So we confuse others about the real solution. Back to then. All right, back to the first century. You've grown up in this temple worship atmosphere. And, and, and you love it so much that you're training to become a priest in God's temple. And thankfully, it's actually in your blood. Now, your life hasn't changed too much 
from this temple worship, from going to these festivals and being part of this amazing electric atmosphere. Now, you're not perfect, of course, but you see the, the genuine joy every time pilgrims make their way to the temple. It's amazing. In fact, one merchant, you know, as you start to become a priest and you're training to be a priest, this merchant, you know, sold 3,000 sheep. 3,000 sheep for sacrifice last Passover. He's talking about this, buddy. That actually happened, by the way. There's records of it. I mean, the, the, the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange has nothing on the court of Gentiles in the Passover season. Right? When people think of greed, they think of Wall Street. Passover season, court of Gentiles, temple. I mean, it was like a mania for commerce. In fact, you've been told that the high priest has a little piece of the action. Has a little profit coming his way. Also true, by the way. And you, you know, you start to benefit also as a new priest. And you're okay. You figure hey, it's a win-win, right? I mean, people worship and they're, they're, they're pleasing God in their worship and we get, a little, we get extra on the side for all our efforts. You see how we slip into this. And yet, I still haven't changed what you're not seeing is that through all your justification, you are changing just for the worse. You begin to justify your religious ritual, how it pleases God. Now you're doing the right thing by telling others about it also. By the way, wherever you find money to be made through religion, wherever people are promoting making money through religion, you'll also find dead religion. Even though I keep telling people they can please and satisfy God through their sacrifice of worship, until this one day, this teacher, the great teacher I've heard about named Jesus, he comes in my place of business. His object lesson showed us that not only are religious rituals impotent to cause real change or please God, but we'd actually made the temple a hiding place from really dealing with God, from really dealing with our problem and the solution he has to offer. We made this temple thinking it to be a holy place. A re- it became a refuge to hide from dealing with God. So we see Jesus teaching here. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Friends, this is a quote from Isaiah 56. Where God promises in this whole chapter, in this section of Isaiah, to send salvations for all peoples. And that's anticipated in his temple physically, in the court of the Gentiles. It's God's way of saying, one day, you you Gentiles have a place in my kingdom. You non-Jews have a place in my kingdom. And I'm showing it, I'm anticipating it in the temple, in the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles should be the one place where anyone could seek God. And they thought, as you came, that you were through temple sacrifice. That's what all the priests were saying. That's what all the merchants were saying. But instead, these so-called religious people had made it into a den of robbers. A hiding place for robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. Whenever I've read this quote, maybe you've read it before, when I've heard robbers, I've heard this quote, I've mostly thought of the robbers piece. right? And that, that people are stealing from God. But actually, I think from the context of Jeremiah 7 in this passage, the emphasis is on the den. It could be 
a den of gamblers. It could be a den of mischief makers. The emphasis is on den as in a hiding place, a refuge from the real problem in your life. You have made church going a refuge. You've made it so important in people's eyes that they can't see the real problem. People see we're led to believe if I just go to temple, if I just show up to church, me and God are good. Me and God, we're good. And I'm so sad that, that pastors, and if I've done this, please forgive me, that they have communicated this. Because as we relate this to now, we have a responsibility to lead others to the right solution. And by the way, that responsibility is partly on you and it's partly on the church leadership. So let's talk about you. Not fooling people that attending church and just doing your own thing and you know, giving a little bit to charity is really going to change you. First of all, you. There's an old saying, which is attributed to St. Francis, that there's no record he actually said it. Share the gospel. Share the good news about Jesus. And when necessary, use words. That is a patently false statement. Words are necessary. Read Romans 10 sometime about that. That, that people have to actually hear the good news about Jesus. So the, by the Holy Spirit, they will put their faith in Him. So when someone compliments you for being a good parent, or they say, man, you're an honest worker, or, or you're a faithful family member or friend, someone gives you a card for that or something, or, or, or someone compliments you about your wisdom or your integrity in the workplace, and you just take it, Silently, or worse, you say, well, you know, I go to church, and that helps. And you leave it there as if the ritual deserves credit. You are leading people away from the right solution. You hear that? If you stay silent, don't say anything, people are going to make the default conclusion, oh, okay, yeah, it's okay. If, if, you're, go- if you're a churchgoer and or a good person, that's what you got to do. God will be happy with that. Please don't leave it there. Lead people to the right solution, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but also as a responsibility on church leadership. When I hear people say they love Sunrise, I need to keep saying to them, even as I remind myself, if you love Sunrise and if you see real change in your life, it's because at Sunrise you're meeting with Jesus. It's not, it's not Sunrise. It's not like a philosophy of ministry we've taken. It's not our amount of prayers that we've prayed. It's not our vision, even. It's because when you come to sunrise, you meet with Jesus. As a 22-year-old in his second year as a pastor teaching uh, German high schoolers, Deutschland, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognized something dangerous in the church. He said this, just as a 22-year-old started to recognize this, Christianity conceals within itself a germ hostile to the church. It is far too easy for us to base our claims to God on our own Christian religiosity, those religious rituals, and our church commitment, a specific religious ritual. And in doing so, so utterly misunderstand and distort the Christian idea. You hear that? Now, German churches, see, and Bonhoeffer's day started to focus on self-preservation and self-promotion. You should come to church because you should. It's what you ought to do. 
Because church will help you. Because in church, you will find salvation. In our church. So come along. And in promoting itself this way, the church actually lost its power. It's real power. It was rife to be replaced by the next power that the culture just swept in and brought along, which happened to be the Nazi party, which would come along and take a dead church, a church looking for real power, and church would say, sure. It would ally itself with the Nazi party. Tragic. We have to always be aware that that, that could happen to us. I, I love this line, Christianity conceals within itself a germ hostile to the church. I love that phrase, germ hostile to the church. It's not, it's not fully hostile to the church because Jesus loves the church. He advances the church. He protects the church against all manner of hell. But there's a germ, a kind of thorn in Jesus' message. It's good for us. It's good for me, I know. Because the gospel is about Jesus' preservation and Jesus' promotion preserving the words of Jesus, and promoting Jesus. Myself, especially as a regular preacher and pastor bread, and all, but all the elders and community group leaders must not be about sunrise preservation or sunrise promotion, but about Jesus. And what Jesus loves, our neighbor, the least of these who are supposed to treat like Jesus, others who labor in Jesus' name, local churches on this island who want to bring attention to Jesus, and there are many good ones. Missionaries who advance the name of Jesus abroad. I want to be about that. Praying for them, giving to them. So in doing so, caring above all that Jesus is proclaimed. And just let Jesus worry about preserving and growing the church. That's Jesus' job, not ours. You get that? Jesus sets himself up, see here, as the temple of God. In his person, Jesus makes possible the presence of God for you and for me. Which helps explain why verses 20 through 25 aren't so random. Because at the cross, the temple curtain will be torn. The temple itself will come down. Suggesting that trust in God himself through Jesus is how real power and real presence becomes possible. This is the one possibility, friends, I don't want you to miss. This is precisely what we tell our kids, actually. When we tell our kids, Mason and Gage, what's necessary to please God and actually change. It's pretty cool because it's actually right here, verses 20 through 25. I didn't expect that. Think about that. The possibility for us is trusting your life to a person. I know it's tempting to trust your life to a religious plan and to a religious ritual. But that's not going to change you. We ask our kids, what, what exactly, what is it about Jesus exactly that you trust? Almost like a catechism, they were to say that he's the God over the universe and my life. He's the God over the universe and my life. He's the only one who can forever forgive the big no in our heart. Sin. Trust that he's the God of the universe in our life. He's the only one who can forever forgive sin. Notice that's exactly, that summarizes exactly what Jesus says after reviewing these dead-to-the-root solutions that can't change you. The emphasis that he talks about here isn't so much about the mountain, on, on the degree of miracle achieved through prayer and moving mountains, as it is on the startling reality that the same God who withers fig trees and moves mountains is personally attentive to you. 
just by trusting Jesus. Personally attentive to what you have to ask him for. At every moment, you can talk to someone who can reach into your history and move the pieces and the players in your life. And so now the final teaching of Jesus, while incredibly important, don't seem so random and disconnected like they belong somewhere on the Sermon on the Mount. They belong here. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's kind of a random comment, isn't it? If not, if not for the lesson of the fig tree. And the fig tree, see, represents our inability to get close to God through our own efforts because of a deeper, darker disease called sin. We never really can change, never really produces lasting fruit, we can never really please God until the person of Jesus tears down the biggest mountain of all, the separating stain of sin. See? Father forgives the stain of sin of all who've trusted in the Son. And so gives them the power to extend that forgiveness to others, to spread His forgiveness because it is spread in them. The mountain of sin has been moved in their lives. Look, friends, I, I, my family grew up going to a traditional liturgical church. Old smells, old hymnals, old traditions. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. I remember going to Sunday school and it was never too heavy. We never opened the Bible. We just learned about ethics. And we got Krispy Kreme donuts. If you don't know about those, they're wonderful. I'll just say that. My, my folks attended this denomination and were part of this particular church for years. But they started to become aware there was no power. There was no change in their lives. And they thought to themselves, you know, let, let's start to read the Bible with some other people to encounter God's change for us in here and what he says. When their minister found out that they were kind of grouping together with other people to read the Bible, he said, you really shouldn't be doing this without me. And so he said, you know, I'll start something. And so he did, and my parents waited. You know what he started? He started a church history course. So my parents, they kept reading the Bible, and they actually started attending a non-denominational church very similar to ours. And they started becoming not just better people, they became new people. And I didn't like it, frankly, guys. I mean, I was like the religious leaders. I was okay with improvements, minor additions to faith, but not radical change. It's too much, and I was hostile about it. Over time, my parents prayed for me that God would move mountains in my life, especially the mountain that was sin that hardened my stony heart against God. And I was so hard, guys. Those prayers were absolutely the catalyst to my trusting Jesus. That mountain was moved, all because they were willing to start by acknowledging they mistakenly took refuge in church going and some charity giving. Will you admit that today? That's you. The, the power to be forever forgiven, the power to forgive others, the power of forever relating to the God who can wither trees to the root and move mountains to the sea. It's available to you, all possible today by trusting a person, not a religious ritual. Please hear me. God may be speaking directly to you, even as I say, you've taken refuge in church, found safety in charity. Now's the time to respond to the one who can actually change your life and not just make you feel better about yourself. Please trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, it's so easy, and I confess it is for me, to take refuge 
and think I'm okay even now and checking off a box and religious rituals and specifically here, I think in Cayman, church going and charity giving. Jesus, there's some here, those words pierce their hearts. They, they know that refers to them. They might be resisting. Please help them relent. Please help them trust a better plan than a bunch of religious rituals to make them right with God, to give them the actual power to change, to be used for a greater plan, a greater purpose in their life. Help them trust you, Jesus, this morning. For those of us who do trust you, help us not make it about our good lives or our good church, but about preserving and promoting the name of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.